Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Ambition Podcast. I'm David Woods-Hale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA. And today, I'm once again delighted to be joined by Sean Meehan, Martin Hilty Professor of Marketing and Change Management and Dean of the MBA Programme at IMD in Lausanne, to chat more about his new book, The Customer Copernicus, How to Be Customer-Led. Last week, for those of you that listened, you'll know that we talked about some of the main themes of Sean's book and the motivations behind it, as well as some examples of organizations that are demonstrating best practice and being customer-centric. In the second part of this two-part special, we'll be looking at why this customer-led approach to business is not a mainstream strategy, analyzing some of the businesses that are failing due to lack of customer centricity, and exploring how customer-led approaches feed into the sustainable practices of organizations. So taking that example and what you've what you've said into into context here, you know, our listeners are MBAs. So they'll be familiar with lots of the concepts that you've been discussing. So trust, transparency, ethics, customer-centric. This all makes sense to me. This this um customer-led approach seems obvious is the wrong word, but it seems sensible in in the modern business world. But in your book, you write about research that that cites that only 24% of senior executives are actually adopting a customer-led approach to running their business. Why is this approach not more mainstream? I think there's probably one huge reason, and then I want to cite another force that's in play. And, and the first is, and it's, it's going to be as obvious as hell when I point this out, but you know, no one's thinking about it. We we call the what isn't uh, customer-led we call it being inside out. So we would say inside out, outside in. Customer lead is outside in. You you look from the with the eyes of the customer. You look into the organization and you engineer the organization around the eyes and the minds of the customer. And the opposite is inside out. Uh, and actually, that is the most natural, convenient, proximate way that you can focus. You focus on what you can control. You optimize, you improve, and you perform. You prioritize the organization's success, targets, agendas, all ahead of customers' interests. Very few KPIs of of senior executives will reflect the creation of customer value and certainly reflect it in the long term. There's an argument, of course, that says, well, that's reflected in in the long-term metrics, which are the shareholder value because, you know, in the long term, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's just not true. Manager, and this is the second layer, managers are obsessed with creating short-term economic value, shareholder value, shareholder first in the, in the short run. And this is a complete misapplication of Milton Friedman's message that all the MBAs will be familiar with. And this topic is being discussed a lot in business schools, short-term, long-term. Um, this, to me, is an inside-out way of thinking. It's seeing the world as a resource base that, that exists for the exploitation of a small number of owners, measuring success in financial terms in the short term, driving the numbers hard, setting near impossible targets. Uh, and that's actually pretty darn widespread. It takes huge courage as a CEO to stand against that and to, uh, to, to say, I'm not going to have it that way. We saw that Bezos did it, but Bezos did it when he was, you know, a, a, a child in, in, in business terms, when, when the business was really just starting out. Paul Pullman came into Unilever, and when he was very, very early on, he made it clear to analysts that he would no longer provide earnings guidance. That was a huge move. He basically said, this is going to be a long-term play. It's going to take time for this to work. Zalando. Uh, when it launched on the stock market, the CEO told all his exec- executives to 
forget about the share price. Don't obsess about the share price. Obsess about the customer. It will come in the long term. Don't worry. And that brings you back to, to Bezos. No profits, no dividends, all about the long haul. Now, the popular discourse, I believe, has changed now. And, and I think the B-School listeners will, will appreciate that. The focus now is on, can we build it back better? And we're having the right discussions about the kind of society we want, what's valued and perspectives and how we should behave. I think this is this puts a laser focus on whether shareholders' interests should not just be optimized, but optimized at the cost of other important stakeholders uh, in, in society. I think we're headed for a much more inclusive place, and I think that's a fantastic thing. It is. And again, I completely agree with everything you're saying. But then I was also quite worried when I read in the book that you, and, and you mentioned a, a while ago, like, you know, the customer led approach isn't like a statue that one builds within the organization and it's there forever. But I was disturbed to read in the book that there's examples of organizations that are taking a customer centric approach and then they decide to move away from this model. That doesn't really connect to me at all when it's such a compelling way to do business. We can clearly measure the benefits of it. Why does it not work for some people or why do they believe it not to work for them? I think Charlie and I would would, would both agree that we wish we had had this conversation with you eight years ago or seven years ago, <laughs> starting out reading the book, because it took us a while to realize that there were two critical questions that we needed to address. One was... How do you become more, what, what the heck is this uh, customer centricity and what we call then customer centricity? Uh, and, and we discovered this thing about being customer led and beliefs and so on. And that led us to a second question, which was, if this is exactly what you said, if this is so darned compelling, why do companies stop? And the truth is they don't actually choose to stop. It's not this conscious thing of, well, that was that then, now we're off to do something else. What we're saying is that there's a balance. There's, there's, it's like a tug of war between outside in and inside out. And because the inside out is natural and the outside in is actually completely unnatural, inconvenient and darn hard work, the default being the opposite is one that's hugely tempting. And we think a customer-led belief is constantly under pressure from three basic sources, the inside, the outside, and rule changers. Let me just subdefine those. Um, when we say the inside, we're saying it's just the common sense and natural way of seeing the world from behind your office desk every day re reasserts itself because it's common sense. You take great, great companies. One, one's Virgin Atlantic. An exceptional entrepreneurial challenger, a real pioneer. So many of the things it did were a huge departure for the airline industry. It grew. It grew. It needed more capital and ownership changed over time. It was a complex series of, of transactions. But in the end, Richard Branson was not in the driving seat at uh, Virgin Atlantic. The objectives became much more commercial. The organization became mature, conventional, and it lost that maverick touch that made it so special. So what we're saying is, you know, left alone, 
unless continually reasserted, the way that Bezos is fighting every day for uh, day day one must prevail, he's actually saying, I, I know that day two is around the corner. I know that it is a set, like gravity. It's, it's pulling me back all the time and we have to fight it. The companies that for one reason or another stop fighting it, and an ownership change is a great, great uh, risk for any company. And I could throw O2 into the into the mix of examples. An amazing customer franchise company. Oh my gosh! Telefonica came in, bought it for precisely that reason, and then it crushed it. It it just didn't give it the space to be the sort of thing it was, and didn't allow it, and didn't allow itself, Telefonica, to learn from it. There's another force which I would say is the outside where newcomers join the pioneering leaders and they blur the customer focus uh, by bringing what you could call conventional doubt, risk aversion into the mix. There was a company in the United States called Market Basket, DeMoulin's Market Basket, and it was a fantastic, um, I would say, super-duper efficient customer-centric company. It was paying its employees really well. It was giving super duper low prices and was hugely popular in the Northeast. And it family owned uh, a bunch of different shareholders and met some of the next generation shareholders uh, came along and basically said, you can charge higher prices and still be low price. You can pay, you can pay employees less and still pay them more than uh, the competition. So come on, give us more returns. And they demanded um, higher returns from uh, from the the executive. The executive ultimately walked out, but they almost killed the golden goose uh, that that was giving them the, the super returns. That those are two huge forces. But the force that that I think we are more more frequently dealing with uh, and, and, and recognizing because it's more celebrated in a way is when competition keeps on improving eventually someone will throw up a a better business model than is used by the incumbent and because the first two factors unless pushed back all the time like Bezos is doing they take the edge off your customer-led zeal and that can prompt a kind of a defensive protectionist response for previously what we would call confident customer innovation. Think about Nokia and the amazing position that it had as market leader, uh, all based on own, I would say, old insights. It was phone-centric, device-centric. And new competitors saw things quite differently. They saw more possibilities. Data was a key role. And, and you know, voila, we have the iPhone, all about the operating system and the way the data is shared across devices, a visual interface. The rules changed. And by then, Nokia had lost the advantage. And the rest is, unfortunately for Nokia, the rest is history. Companies need to do three things to avoid this, uh, what, what looks like the inevitability. They need to know that beliefs matter. You go to a company like WL Gore, and and boy, you, you, you get to see from the, them the outset that they do things so, so differently and why they do things differently and what matters. And everything is designed around that from employment, uh, from 
mentoring, promotions, pay, um, organization by teams rather than by departments. Uh, and the rationale for that is constantly in the face of, of the employees. And it's done so many wonderful things with that. So knowing that beliefs matter and curating the belief system is, we would say, number one, step one. You you get it, but it's not about practices. It's about beliefs, and you need to curate and manage and, and maintain and, and invest in that. You, you also need to appreciate, if you want to stay customer-led, that more and more moments of belief are required over time. And, and I could point at probably don't have time, but we, we could talk about Hilti where, where they introduced many, I would say, innovations where the, the organization, the, the people in the company would stop and say, what, what's this? And, and the, you know, and when, when dissected and analyzed, it's very clear that this makes total sense from a customer focus uh, point of view. So, uh, you know, big, significant steps that get people's uh, attention and prove yet again that commitment to customer first is still there. And most companies over the very long term will be under enormous pressure. And that's when they've got to be boldest. And that's the third um, the third defense line. Be boldest when it matters most. Lego was under huge price pressure from retailers, digital, and it went too many directions at once. Its defensive moves were taking them everywhere and nowhere. And they they lost touch with their core customers. Their core customers are five to 11-year-olds. And as a result of refocusing on them, they realized we can buy our products, we put kids at the center. We need to look at them, listen to them, watch them play. And, and from this will come some more genius. And, and, you know, Lego's back to where we all thought it should be. And, and But it was a bold step in, in the age of digitalization and and extraordinary commercialization and the retail landscape changing totally to go down that road to maintain its price points uh, and to to met to, to actually recapture that customer base was hugely impressive i mean that's just fascinating stuff sean and i think when you when, when i'm listening to you speaking about it i'm sort of thinking to myself yeah that's really really interesting but it just makes so much sense that's what i'm taking from this interview that this just makes sense really and it, it's something we should all be thinking about and, and considering. Yeah. I know we are running out of time and I have taken up a lot of your time. So thank you for that. But just before we finish, um, I know that at, at IMD and on the MBA programs, social impact is something that's really important to you there. And it's certainly something that we really sh- share at Amber and BGA as well. So I was just really wondering to wrap up, yeah. thinking about sort of the impact of the, that organizations and leaders are having on communities and societies. How does being customer-led really feed into the ethics, sustainability, responsible management agenda? I don't know that it does so explicitly, but but because it's kind of, you know, a normal, as, as we just described it, what we hope is a normal and natural way of doing business. I would just, you know, remind people of the opposite. You know, there are some great, great customer franchises out there that have been wrecked by uh, by management that have just lost their way. We cite in the book, um, Wells Fargo, it built an enviable reputation on um, it, its interest in the community, being close to customers, empowering managers, really developing businesses locally. And, and it lost all of that. It engaged in highly unethical practices where 
employees were creating thousands of bogus bank accounts in the names of existing customers. Customers had no idea that this was being done. It was all it was all down to unreasonable cross-selling targets having been uh, having been set. It's not just outrageous and unethical. It's clearly unlawful. And it was cited by federal regulators. The CEO appeared before a U.S. Senate committee. He lost his job. He was fined seven and a half million, faces a lifetime ban from financial services. Um, 8,000 people lost their, their jobs for malpractice. Uh, 8,000 people. Um, so, so, you know, the flip side is that the behaviors that it can uh, lead to are clearly unacceptable. We saw that actually with Tesco. Tesco, as we all know, had this amazing run um, and lost half its market capitalization in a very short period of time after uh, after a, a profit collapse. And to to try to hide it, they had increasingly generous generous offers to customers, more and more pressure uh, for on suppliers to give them funding. Um, to, to help them paper over the cracks. And in the end, there was an accounting scandal and they ended up uh, paying over about a quarter of a billion pounds uh, to the regulators to settle the, uh, the disputes. It seems to us that while I cannot tell you that um, customer-led is, leads to a more ethical or social company, it is clear that inside-out practices do lead to unethical practices. This much is clear. You asked about the MBA and, and in particular, and here at IMD, and, and let me finish by talking about that a little bit. We, we sitting here, we're saying, look, as a society, we're tackling a climate crisis. We accept the gap between rich and poor is unacceptable. We're abhorred by the living conditions considered normal and accepted in so many places around the world. And we're motivated to end systematic discrimination of women. Corporate greed is of enormous concern. And these are things that, that are going on in, in wider society. So as a business school, it's with a mission to develop leaders who transform organizations and contribute to society, we've got to look at that pretty hard, that reality and pretty hard and ask what we can do. Businesses are in a central position. Economies depend on business to create a tax base, to create employment, and all the great products and services that get us through life every day. And business schools generally have been criticized for a casual treatment of societal responsibility. And this indeed could well be justified. Maybe at IMD because we're so engaged with businesses all the time and with the practice of management, perhaps we're more acutely aware, I don't know, um, of, of these various issues of business in society or what we like to call it as responsible leadership. The MBA program today doesn't treat business in society as an elective issue. We're baking sustainability into all courses from accounting to marketing and strategy. We have a separate core course devoted to business and society, not an elective one, a core course. And that's important because business is in a privileged position. Leaders accept enormous responsibility, not just for the shareholders, but to society at large. And they're in a position to influence, by example, to influence governments, influence society. And I think we do a lot at IMD. And, and we're on the brink of announcing more, but but I'm not, I can't go there. But I'll come back to you and let you know when that when that happens. And we know the challenge of change is enormous for society overall. And all B schools can do more. And 
we're committed to leading on that front. You know, frankly, you know, the future of the planet and the future of society is in play and we cannot not play our part and we play it with enthusiasm. Fantastic. Sean, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear more about your book and, and your thoughts on, on the customer-led organization. And, and, and let's try and create a movement from this to, to get more people thinking about this and, and, and hopefully moving forward in the right directions. Thank you so much again. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and good luck with the book. Thanks, David. Really a great pleasure to be on the show. And I hope, uh, I hope the book is of some interest. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, thank you once again for taking the time to speak to me over the past couple of weeks, Sean. As I mentioned, Sean's book, which he co-authored with Charlie Dawson, the founder of The Foundation, a London-based consultancy that helps organizations create customer-led success, is now available via Amazon and other retailers. Sean and Charlie also wrote a piece for our online magazine, Ambition, on the five successful customer-centric companies and the lessons we can learn from them. You can read all about it at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.